Hi, David. It's uh, it's a real pleasure for me to talk to you. Actually, an honor. An honor. Um, I'll explain why later. Okay, Grüß Gott, <laughs> uh, Marcus. Uh, same for me. <laughs> um, you know, I I have had come across you many many years ago. I think maybe even when you did the first elephant, uh, Thai elephant thing. So that must have been like 20 years ago or so. It, is it is. Yeah, it would be. I was there on January, I mean, on New Year's Eve uh, 2000. So I actually oh. was there on the on the uh, night of the millennium, I suppose. I see. Yeah, yeah. Well, so, so you know, like uh, I, I then found out that I've been following you on Facebook even for from years i don't know i don't remember it's just interesting but i came across this this one interview um or talk that you gave about the uh, a book that was recently released right it's, mm -hmm. it's pretty new right oh I yeah it came out a couple of weeks ago yeah and uh, and and really i have to say like i i don't necessarily want to talk about the book i really really it's it sh should be more about you somehow right mm -hmm. um and because you your work as and, and this is what I find fascinating is like that you are a researcher and a musician, right? It's, mm -hmm. it's, and it, that is kind of like a career that I could have gone into. Mm. Um, but I decided, I, I decided um, to just be the artist mm -hmm. uh, at, at some point. And, and now like with the, with the pandemic, like, you know, like starting to think, starting like, like imagining alter, alternative, uh, uh, that's that life that's that my life could have could have taken <laughs> yes <laughs> right and uh and so i'm, I'm really fascinated in um in uh, the topic of the book because like uh, mathematics music um, um that's sort of like even like in high school that was like the the, the main thing uh, mm -hmm. i was interested in as well as um actually like the art of education already like i was also uh, uh, very much into how to learn and how to teach, right? And so um, then having discovered that the uh, the elephant music, uh, Thai elephant music, and that's maybe it's a good starting point even to talk about like your your interest. How did how did that actually come about? It's a funny story. So um, I was at that period, I was kind of uh, good friends with a couple of Russian artists named Komar and Melamed. Uh, these are a uh, couple of guys from, from Moscow, and uh, they did satirical paintings in, in Russia before 89. And so they were thrown out. Uh, mm -hmm. They were early people that were able to leave Russia just because their art was found to be so sarcastic. In a really unrelated story, but related to me, I also at some point started doing work with the plastic people of the universe who were the people in Prague who in some ways started the velvet revolution and mm -hmm. were also one of them um, was also expelled in his case to Canada. Um, so through a series of coincidences, I, I was uh, um, friends with people in, in, in these countries, which of course includes Berlin. Uh, the first time I went in, to Berlin, which would be in the 80s, I, I could try to come up with the year, but it might have been 87. Um, and we would take uh, trips, that, that was with my string quartet, we'd take trips into East Berlin and play sort of uh, um, 
I, I'm not sure what to call them, but illegal concerts that, you know, at different places. And, and uh, so I saw, uh, you know, I saw for an American, I saw a good bit of this. Anyway, Komar and Melamy ended up in New York um, and they have and still have very sort of, uh, hmm, we're getting some tones. Oh, that's my that's my cat walking on the keyboard. Uh, where, where's the, where are those organ sounds coming from? Um, is the cat walking? There's a little keyboard um, that I think is just under where your camera is showing it. Yeah. Um, so Comar and Melamed made sarcastic kind of uh, uh, fun of society, whether they were in Russia or here in the United States. So to some extent, I think they felt that uh, they, they were looking at paintings by an elephant from, um, this elephant is from, my cat cannot stop interrupting us. She's absolutely fascinated. So they, they uh, saw paintings by an elephant in the Cleveland Zoo. There's a well-known elephant uh, trainer in the zoo, or uh, I'm not really a trainer, but the person in charge of the elephants at the Cincinnati Zoo named Don Red Fox, since retired, uh, happens to be American Indian. And he, he had a good relationship with the elephants there. And one of the elephants named Renee apparently would get bored and pick up a stick and start drawing in the sand. Or she would do it, I think, first with the trunk, and then he gave her a stick. And realizing that she was kind of bored and making abstract designs, another tradition from Berlin, you know, very, very much like Kandinsky, who actually plays into this story. Mm -hmm. So she's, uh, she's, she's essentially drawing, and he, Don Red Fox gives her paints and a canvas, and she would paint on the canvas. Abstract painting. Reason I say that Kandinsky was involved is apparently there was a similar story at the Berlin Zoo um, when Kandinsky lived in Berlin, and he he would go there to uh, watch the elephants and be inspired by the elephants. And uh, at least Melamed feels that some of the influence of beginning of abstract art of the type he was doing might have been influenced by him watching the elephants at the zoo. So uh, at the Berlin Zoo. At any rate, Comar and Melamed were looking at the paintings done by Rene the Elephant in the Cincinnati Zoo. At about the same time, there was an article in the New York Times, and it said that elephants in Thailand, who had been working for literally thousands of years as trucks, as uh, in, the, in the lumber industry and so on, were losing their jobs. Um, Thailand had become paved, so you didn't need them to take the lumber through the woods anymore, had commercial gasoline-driven trucks, et cetera. Um, then they were losing their jobs. So they said, aha, uh -huh, we'll teach the elephants to paint. I bet they can paint in the style of de Koenig, and they can sell them for as much as de Koenig sells his work. I mean, that's their level of, uh, that's the kind of humor they have, and, and they will never break a smile. They will, they will say it with absolute assurance. It's kind of a, Prussian sense of humor, maybe a little bit as well. Mm -hmm. You know, never break, never show that you're putting somebody on. 
mm-hmm. but they weren't really putting th- them on. I mean, at some point they, they, they took themselves up on that. Mm-hmm. So they, uh, befriended an American woman named Lindsay Emery, who also became a good friend of mine. Uh, Lindsay knew Ty quite well. She had studied Thai. She'd spent time in the country. She married a Thai man. And uh, so she was able to take them, uh, take them there. And they forged a relationship with another American who had now been living in Thailand, probably getting close to 50 years now, named Richard Lair. Richard is, um, in some ways, probably the foremost conservationist of uh, the Southeast Asian elephant. He's done a lot of very important work. Well, these elephants were losing their jobs, and about 60 or so of them were owned by the government. In, in Thailand and Southeast Asia, usually elephants, if they're owned, if they're, quote, domesticated or private property, mm-hmm. these were owned by the government. So what are we going to do with all these logging elephants who no longer have jobs logging? There was a second uh, issue there, which was uh, Thailand was becoming so badly deforested that floods were happening. There was a particular flood where a lot of people died, and it was because the the forests had been stripped um, in the hills. And so they essentially made logging illegal in Thailand. Now the wood comes from Burma and from other places. So here are all these animals that can weigh 10,000 pounds, that can eat 400 pounds a day. That, that would be something like, uh, I hope I do this right, about 180 kilograms. Did I do that right? Um, I might have put that. Yeah, that might, have, yeah. might be the reciprocal. <laughs> um, and uh, uh, right, what is two two kilograms in a pound? Yeah. So we're talking about a 2.6 or something we could look yeah. at. Yeah. Um, but okay, so about 1,000 kilograms a day of, of food, big veterinary bills. Um, Ideally, you would put them in the wild because domesticated elephants and wild elephants are really the same. But you can't. There's not enough space in Thailand, not, not enough wild uh, areas. Mm-hmm. The animals have learned to be around humans all the time. It's, it, th- this isn't really going to happen, not in, in our lifetime, I'm afraid, maybe for a very small number of elephants. So they started an elephant conservation center up in Lampang between Langpang and Chiang Mai in the, in the north. Um, often German visitors will, will go there, so some of the people listening might, might be familiar with it. So that's the Thai Elephant Conservation Center. It's the first, and it's still the only one that's owned by government. Uh, there Now, since the success of that one, there have been plenty of other uh, commercial, privately owned uh, conservation centers for elephants. So uh, at that time, it was the only one. We're, as you said, we're talking 20 years ago and more. So Comer and Melamed go there, and they find that, of course, the elephants uh, learn to paint instantly. I mean, within five minutes, an elephant can be taught to do an abstract painting. Uh-huh. And so Richard came back. It had been his first visit to America, I believe, in 19 years. Um, he, by American standards, is broke. Uh, when I have gone to Thailand, I stay in the best room in the best hotel in Lampang, and it's $6 a night, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's that inexpensive. Mm-hmm. $6, by the way, is almost what I paid for this cup of coffee just before our meeting. Okay. So um, it's, it's uh, 
it's very inexpensive there, which means if you come here on a Thai salary, well, it's one reason that there aren't a lot of Thai tourists in, in Berlin and New York City and San Francisco and so on. Um, so he needed a place to stay. He stayed in my apartment and we became friends. And we're, we were, he's a big music lover. So we're listening to music and we came up with the idea, well, if elephants paint, if only we could build ergonomic instruments, since Richard said, look, elephants like listening to music. They like listening to human music. Uh, there, there are a couple of bands playing sort of Thai hillbilly music, if you will, mm -hmm. at the center and they come over and they like it. And uh, you sing to them when you bring them in from the forest at night and so on. So elephants are, are well known to like music by the people that live with them. So maybe if we build ergonomic instruments, meaning that they'd be easy for elephants to operate, perhaps they they'd play music. So I went there with Lindsay and her uh, fiance at the time, Neil, and then also brought uh, some other Americans, including Ken Butler, who's an instrument maker, it lives in Brooklyn. Mm -hmm. And uh, there was a uh, an artist who does a lot of work in Berlin, although he's American, named Don Ritter. So Don mm -hmm. came as well. And uh, a couple of other people who wanted to video the adventure. And uh, I made plans. I, you know, I, if, honestly, I went there and not knowing, not having an idea of what elephant music ought to be. Mm -hmm. And the what I sort of had an epiphany, I guess, in a classic way, because Neil really, really wanted to see, he'd read about the ancient temples. Um, the most famous one is Angkor Wat, which is over the border a little bit in, in Cambodia. But there are quite a few ancient Buddhist or Buddhist slash Hindu temples in throughout Thailand. And so we were spending our day before Richard was available and we could work with the elephants. We spent a few days just driving around, uh, in, including in Isan, which is sort of the, um, I don't know the German equivalent actually, but the, the uh, American equivalent would be sort of Mississippi, sort mm -hmm. of poor, uh, very good food, a lot mm -hmm. of people without electricity, um, without a lot of education, um, great music um really living in the backwoods mm -hmm. so we went around isan and there was a kind of music they would play in the temples even if the temples are somewhat hindu you know buddhism and hinduism and the and their own traditional religion which is an animist religion all sort of combine in that part of northern thailand and northeast thailand and they had a particular kind of music mm -hmm. and i said it's very slow moving with a lot of gongs and percussion. And I was like, that's it. That's the music. Mm -hmm. Now, why should that be the music? Because ultimately what's most important is not bringing in tourists. It's the local Thai people. Let's give them something they like. Let's give them something the elephants would like, because it's similar to the music they've grown up with. Now I know that sounds strange, but they hear music all the time. The domesticated elephants mm -hmm. let's give them something they like and the, and the people would like and so the um the scale that they use in most of thailand including now we're talking before i was talking isan now we're talking lana where chiang mai is 
and I have, like I said, I happen to have a piano here. And the most common scale, there's variations of it, but would probably be if you can hear this. Right? If you just play the scale. Right, I'm just fiddling around playing anything that comes into my head. But it, because it's in the scale, it, it has the ambience of the music from up there. Yeah. Then you can figure out, I, I don't, I'm, I'm not, as you said, I'm not here to advertise my book, but the math is in there. So mm -hmm. you can take metal tubes and cut them to different lengths. Did you ever meet Werner Duran in Berlin? No. Werner uh, ran a, uh, he probably still does, if there's still record stores in Berlin. And he used to work with Matthias Ostervalt uh, when they would do uh, uh, contemporary, uh, contemporary music concerts at the Tiergarten and other places in Berlin. So um, he had a band in Berlin where they would cut uh, plastic tubes, long plastic tubes that were used in construction and so on. And they would bounce them or blow into them and they would have different pitches. And the way you would do this is by the length of the tube. Yeah. The longer the tube, the deeper the note. Uh, if you, if you uh, cover one side of the tube, it becomes an octave lower. Um, we won't get into the physics of this unless you want to. It's really not complicated, but you can certainly read about it. People can so, read the book. They can read the book, <laughs> or whatever. Um, and they, they don't have to buy the book. They can steal it. I don't care. So, yeah. But you can learn how to do this yourself. So you, so I, I found a metal shop in Lampang, very mm -hmm. close to the hotel I was staying at. And so we would, with the guy that ran the metal shop, and of course, I don't speak Thai. He doesn't speak English. But we could... You know, I'd go in there and do the measurements, do the chalk, then he would bring out the welder, you know, and cut it. And uh, and so we built these giant uh, xylophone-like instruments. Now, xylophone-like instruments are very popular in traditional Thai music. Um, the common one is the Renat. So we built these instruments, and people would say, oh, it's Renat. Now, a Renat is built with wood slats. This is for elephants and the instruments live outside. So they're made out of steel. They were made out of the kind of steel. If you're doing construction and you have electrical wires or you have plumbing, you run the wires through these long metal tubes, yeah. but you can find metal tubes that have a good ring. So I would go through this, you know, this enormous metal shop and just hit all the tubes and try to find ones that had a good, had a good ambience, had a good, sort of uh had uh, that had a nice ring like a bell and then mm -hmm. cut them to these different notes mm -hmm. and arrange them so that they're on a marimba like instrument and mm -hmm. thai people said ah there were knots already <laughs> in a sense of success yes but then yeah. we were very pleased to see that when we moved these were knots a few miles away into the elephant center the elephants could play them instantly and by instantly again, I mean five minutes. Yeah. So these are the same elephants that we're painting were the same ones that could play the instruments. So you made special mallets for them as well, right? No, no, you just have uh, regular sticks. Okay. And, and the elephants are very good at picking up sticks in, in their trunk. Mm 
mm-hmm. and they can bang them around, you know. And then we started building other kinds of instruments. One of them that's kind of uh, poetic in a way was uh, there were people at the conservation center who were doing illegal logging with a giant circular saw, like this enormous, and uh, but it had sharp edges. So we just filed down the edges. In this case, we meaning um, uh, not not me personally, but somebody else at the center uh, filed down the edges so nobody would cut themselves. And then we suspended it, and now they can hit it, and it's a beautiful symbol. Mm-hmm. But the symbol also sounds like these traditional symbols I was referring to that are mm-hmm. used in Thai, Hindu, Buddhist, slash animist, religious music. Mm-hmm. So if you want to play perhaps the most profound piece that came out of that, I'm not saying the best, I'm just saying the most profound. If you would like to play some of that on your broadcast, there's one, so one of the Mahouts, the people that train the elephants, is named Bunyang. And Bunyang happens to also be, he's a very respected Mahat. All the other Mahats respect the guy because they think that he's such a good, he's so good with elephants. Mm-hmm. Yeah, his knowledge is so good. And, and uh, his elephant happens to be quite dangerous, uh, but not to Bunyang, who knows exactly, you know, has, has a good mm-hmm. relationship and knows how to handle him. Mm-hmm. Elephants can be very, very peaceful and they literally can babysit human babies or they can be killers who, who, who want it. You know, the, the, the personalities are very wide, very mm-hmm. diverse. And the same elephant can, can do both. So they, they, um, do have, they do have mood swings. Oh yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And some of them we understand, some of them have to do with being in a uh, must, which is for the males, a, a time of sexual activity or being in heat, you know, for female. And some of them have nothing to do with that. And, and you don't know what happened. Mm-hmm. I, I've personally saw a uh, very kind, only six-year-old elephant. Remember, they, they live to be 70 or something, and they're, they're you know, a long-lived elephant. I saw a six-year-old who's still really a child just mm-hmm. flip and decide she wanted to attack and maybe kill somebody. Unfortunately, uh, there were good mahouts around who stopped that from happening very quickly. Mm-hmm. Just uh, walked up to a woman she'd never seen before and, and started started the, the stereotyped activities they'll do to kill someone. So I mean these kind of things can happen. It's, it's, uh, and and not happen. And how, how do you how do you always sweet? How do you stop how do you stop an elephant from killing killing somebody? How did they um, do that? These well, I have to tell you, I, I've seen it happen. Mm-hmm. But I don't really know. These Mahouts are very, very skillful. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and they, they do know how to control the elephants. Now, a lot of people think it's by torturing them or something, and that's not true. Mm-hmm. They, they're, they're doing this with ear tugs, with yelling at them, with poles and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, training elephants is much more of a challenge and requires much more skill than what we're used to training horses and training dogs. It's just, it's a very, very profound level of skill. I'm not putting down at all people who train uh, horses and dogs. That's also great skill, but the parameters of elephant behavior are so much wider. Mm -hmm. Their intelligence is deeper. Their emotional swings are wider. 
they can be much more dangerous and much more docile. Um, they, they have a sense of humor, which is mm -hmm. hard to say. I mean, may be true of cats and dogs, but it's kind of hard to know. Mm -hmm. But with elephants, it's, it is not. Mm -hmm. um, they have many, many different calls to each other. They're good at communicating with us, and they often will understand 60 or more words in full sentences. Mm -hmm. Right? Mm -hmm. So um, the training is, is traditional, and it's, it's, it's very deep and, and quite amazing. And you're not, no one's going to believe me unless they go and, and experience it, but you can do that. Mm -hmm. the, the Conservation Center, for instance, makes a lot of its money from tourism and, and teaching people how to be elephant trainers and that kind of thing. So, so does going, that, yeah, sorry, go yeah, ahead. So does, does that mean that even before you presented the elephants with the instruments, you sort of knew that it was going to work, right? Richard knew and the Mahouts knew. But mm -hmm. the Mahouts first were like, okay, who's this crazy American <laughs> guy? They called me old Brenner because, um, <laughs> you know, uh, ties never go bald. They just don't, or it's very rare. The only people shave off their hair in Thailand are when you're a monk. Mm -hmm. Many Thai men and, and women become monks for maybe a year or so. It's sort of the equivalent of serving in the army in a sense. Mm -hmm. And they'll shave okay. their head. But otherwise, they they tend not to lose their hair or at least not lose very much. Mm. So having this weirdo bald Westerner was, was a little strange. And so the, that was my nickname, Yul Brenner. They all know Yul Brenner because the movie, the King and I is censored in Thailand mm. because it makes fun of the Thai monarchy. Therefore they all know it, right? <laughs> you, you want something to be well known, you censor it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so anyway, that was my, my nickname at that time. Um, so they thought I was nuts, but as the elephants started learning to play music, they, so the first record, we've done three records. The first one was only with six elephants. And by the time I came back, maybe a year later, there were about a dozen elephants. We ended up having about 16 who could play instru musical instruments. Mm -hmm. um, now, since then, the orchestra really doesn't exist anymore. This is for various reasons that mostly have to do with politics and money. Mm -hmm. However, um, they still do two or three tourist shows a day. And uh, the tourist shows always start off with a recording I did of local children singing a nursery rhyme about elephants with the elephants playing instruments. And then I faked all this orchestra music at home, you know, in my home studio. Mm -hmm. And then an elephant comes out and plays an improvised solo on this giant marimba. Mm -hmm. And then um, the Mahouts have trained the elephants to play one song, which is memorized. Happens to be that same um, common uh, Thai uh, nursery song uh, uh, that every Thai kid knows. And it's, it's about elephants. Mm -hmm. um, and so they come out and play that. So they're still, they still, are playing music on a daily basis, but the large orchestra, um, unfortunately, no longer exists. Uh, mm -hmm. The, I was saying the instruments are outside, and if you don't have upkeep for them, there are daily monsoons there, it's, especially this time of year. You know, starting in the summer, mm -hmm. and and during the monsoon season, there are big rains every day, and so if you don't 
keep them from the rain and waterproof them and so on and, and keep them in good shape. They rust and they, they uh, disappear. So um, it, it would be great to continue that perhaps, but also it kind of do, has done its work. Yeah. The work of the painting and the, uh, it isn't, I mean, it's a strange thing to ask other species to do human behaviors. Although of course we raise them often for our food and, and we raise them as, you know, to race or pack animals, or, you know, we have our relationships with other species are very important and troubling and their ethical issues and all, all that, um, is something that we should be concerned with, especially with animals like elephants um, and training them to do human activities can be a little bit troubling. Um, I think having them play music, which they enjoy is a lot less troubling than using them for logging animals or in warfare mm -hmm. or for trucks or um, mm -hmm. other activities that are traditional as well um so do you know if there are any they've done, the, they've done their work the work was yeah. to bring attention to the conservation center yeah for a conservation to make sure that this center and other centers can exist we hope in perpetuity and this is going to be very important because as the asian elephant population shrinks and shrinks and shrinks there are over a hundred thousand elephants um a hundred years ago, now there are somewhere around six or 7,000, mm -hmm. about half of which are domesticated. Before it was 100,000 domesticated elephants. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So as the need for them economically shrinks, unfortunately, the population shrinks as well. And uh, how are we going to encourage people to, you know, for this conservation effort and things like the painting and the also, the elephants play soccer and things like that. Um, I, I think these have been helpful. And I'm also not sure that there's required. There's another kind of element about it, which is the sort of, oh, my God, elephants can improvise music. They can improvise orchestra music, which I hope makes people think about them differently. Because when we try to tell people who are not around them, which is almost all of us, Mm -hmm. how profound and uh, insightful and talented and intelligent uh, they are and how much they share their own culture with each other. All this stuff is hard to imagine. But I think if you realize these are a bunch of other species who are playing sometimes even of their own you know volition mostly because they're bored but they go up and and play instruments and they will they're not just capable of doing this but they enjoy doing this and they can do what sounds to some of us like beautiful music and i i'm not sure that they don't listen to music very differently than we do mm -hmm. which i know is a big claim and I have reasons to make that claim. I also have reasons to be careful with it. Mm -hmm. You know, so I was, I was just if you thinking. do that, it, it makes it makes you understand and be empathetic. I hope. I, I think yeah. something very similar happened 
or at least I hope something will happen with the elephants that's similar to the discovery of whale song by Roger and Katie Payne and Scott McVeigh and, and others. Because I think once people realize that whales sing and their songs can go on for half an hour and they're repeated and they're beautiful and they learn them from each other and they continue to learn them, that makes us think about whales in a way that I think I'm sure has really helped in the survival of some of these species that were that we were very close to killing off. And specifically with the humpback whale, but I think with many of the other species as well. Mm -hmm. So uh, a way to, I mean, maybe it sounds very shallow to say humans have to appreciate other species, but we're kind of shallow. We should acknowledge that and, and, and deal with it. And if understanding that whales can sing and gibbons sing and holler monkeys sing and most songbirds, all songbirds sing and elephants can play orchestra music and birds can play instruments and so on. And unfortunately my cat is playing the piano and, uh, but the cat playing the piano is at a different level, granted. Um, but this helps you, I, I think helps if we need, if we need that to develop knowledge and empathy, fine. I'm fine with it. Mm -hmm. Even if it seems, even if it seems that there are elements which are childish and, and uh, show offy and, and uh, can be, you know, the, the, I, we can acknowledge that there are some aspects of it which ought to trouble us. No, I will, overall, I, will. I think, uh, you know, you put your, you, you put your weight on the, the side of the scale where you th hope it's going to do good. And, and let's hope that that, the, I, I'm confident for the whales, it's, it's done good. Yeah. You know, I will post a link to, um, to the first album, the mm -hmm. Thai Elephant Orchestra album, because I think the music speaks for itself, even mm -hmm. like, you know, it's, I don't think that, uh, there's anything that is show offy about that if you actually listen to the music. Like if you see it as a spectacle, uh, then I may see that, but it's actual, it's actual music and there's listening involved and right. it's, it's incredible. And it just, you know, like just the fact that they wouldn't do something like that in the wild does not mean that if they are presented with the opportunity, they may enjoy it or may even want to learn more about it. That's that, right? So this they, is- They enjoy playing with each other. It's a social occasion. Yeah. So it's- Playing, it's, playing instruments, it's something different. You know, it's like today we're going to do something different. Look, there's a whole bunch of activity. 12 of us are put together, you know, often they're kept separate, not for safety reasons, but because most of mm -hmm. these are working elephants. And even in the forest, you can't let them roam. They have like a chain that's about 40 feet long, which means, you know, whatever, 12 meters or so. Mm -hmm. But it's still a chain. Now, an interesting thing about the chain is the elephants are strong enough. They can break the chain whenever they want, mm -hmm. but they don't. Mm -hmm. And they, they just stay in that area of the forest. The reason you have them separate in the forest is not just because they might fight or mate or whatever. It's mostly because uh, they eat all the vegetation in the area. So mm -hmm. you have to move them to another place the next night so that there's fresh fresh uh leaves and so on mm -hmm. because if you just had otherwise they might eat up 
the stand of trees and those trees die. And so, I mean, it's, it's con now it's conservation for the plants. Yes. Yeah. So that's why you, uh, uh, so to get a whole bunch of elephants together um, for something different is uh, something that they can enjoy. Yes. Yeah. Hey, let me, let me just, just jump to the introduction of the book because um, I really love like the, the very first sentence of the introduction, which is like, uh, well, the end of that sentence is no one needs this book. <laughs> and uh, honesty, brutal honesty. honesty. <laughs> yeah, but I, I love it. And I also, I think I get it. Um, but let me ask this question. So maybe kind of like start, let's start at the end, right? Of the thought processes of your research process. And um, is there a way to just, in simple words, just explain what the result what the and and I'm, I mean that like on a personal level not not even as a researcher mm -hmm. like 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 what is your your conclusion well the reason to have a book like this is uh because I had a lot of questions about the basis of music and then realizing we're not all so different and other musicians have these questions too and they are not taught. They are simply not taught. So I have many, many friends who went to the conservatory. In a sense, I did. I mean, I mostly studied science, but I took night lessons and composition at the Juilliard School. And I had composing lessons and violin lessons and all that kind of stuff. But you don't get, if you're study in music school ah oh, you have the same issue you have the cat on the, the running but you just don't have the piano she's running no piano here difference. okay so uh what's the difference the difference is there they teach you the rules in music school that you need to make a living and that makes a lot of sense here's how you play your instrument Here's your scales. This is how you get a good sound. This is how you read music. If you're playing in an idiom where you read music, this is how harmonies work. You use this chord followed by that chord. Uh, this is how one note leads to another note in a particular style. These are the kinds of things you need to know in any genre, any tradition to go out and to perform. But musicians, as a rule, all artists are curious and they want to know more. Mm -hmm. So there are important, there are important phenomena which underlie every kind of music, whether it's schlaga or hillbilly mm -hmm. or Prussian march music <laughs> or, um, or, or, um, you know, Vivaldi or music from West Africa or Australia. There, there are fundamental issues that are not taught, but people have been studying mm -hmm. literally for thousands of years. Greece, Egypt, China, etc. And there, there are questions like, well, 
all over the world, we play music that has scales that are made up of octaves and fifths. People who are not musicians, I just lost them. But for musicians, they all know what I mean. Most of the most of the scales that are used throughout the world have five notes or eight notes in all sorts of traditions. Going back to the oldest instruments that have been uh, found, which happened to be in southern Germany, mm-hmm. in, in caves in southern Germany, where some of the flutes are so old that they're made out of mammoth tusks, right? So we know what the scales are because we can re- recreate these. There's a fellow in Germany who works on this named Wolf Hein. So you may be interested in speaking to him one day, but he's he uh, finds the ancient instruments and rebuilds them. And so we know what the, the scales were. Then there are, uh, so what is the basis for that? And it turns out there is there are reasons for this. Yeah. Now, another question that, okay, we hear these, these different pitches and they sound good to us. Do they sound good to your cat? Do they sound good to the other animals, right? And there are, there's actually pretty good insights into that as well. Now, what makes this sound sound pleasant and this sound sound like noise? Well, there are reasons for that too. Um, so then when, when those sounds are made, this is moving air, right? Everybody's heard of sound waves. Everybody knows sound waves are waves in the air. But what does that mean? How can you imagine? You can imagine a wave in a, on, on, uh, you know, uh, you can imagine a, a wave in on your lake in Berlin, but uh, you can't imagine a wave in the air. Where, where does it start and stop? Right. But all this stuff is is actually known and is explainable. Mm-hmm. Now, granted, it takes some math, but. As soon as you mention math, anybody with a music or art background tunes out because they say, I will not understand that. They as soon as you put up an equation, they go like, I didn't have that. I don't know that. I'm not going to listen. They, so like I went to a lot of work to make everything explainable in math that you learned by the time you were nine years old. Okay. It's only multiplication and division, nothing more. Even if we're talking about sine waves and fractals and going to the third power and logarithms and all that, you don't have to worry about that. Explain everything in simple division and multiplication. In fact, the math you're doing with multiplying to division is the same as you're doing with the other stuff. The other stuff is just people that use math a lot use it because it's faster. But but they, they don't necessarily understand it any better. And even for them, thinking about it in terms of multiplication, division, adding and subtraction, that's all you need. And you are going to be able to understand it. I'm not saying you can understand everything instantly. You may have to sit there, think about it, come back the next day, look at it again, all that, but you will get it. And you're going to understand all these questions which are not taught in music school. They call it music theory, but music theory is is different. Music theory typically is teaching you how to play in a particular style. This is different. This is like how all music sounds, how it sounds to everyone, how it sounds to other animals, how when there are those waves in, in the air, that becomes, the, and this sounds strange, but it becomes waves in your ear, 
It becomes waves in particular cells in your ear. It becomes waves in the brain. The waves in the brain are electrical and chemical. They're not, they're no longer waves in the air. Mm -hmm. Um, And this ends up giving the emotions and the understanding and all of, of music and sound. So to be able to go back to your personal question, I wanted to know all this stuff myself, but also I know that other people want to know that too. The, the, the thing that you were alluding to, nobody needs this. Of course you don't need it. People have been, there are millions of people making great music and uh, listening to great music and they don't need to know any of this stuff. They do it without knowing it. But a lot of people would like to know it. And will it help you in your own making your own music and understanding your own music? Sometimes it can, or at least it can change your mind about it. Like I was saying, if I didn't know this stuff, I wouldn't have been able to build those giant instruments. I had to know how to make them play in a certain scale. Um, There are a lot of other things that I could give you many examples, but uh, it's important often if you want to step back and find your own way of doing things. Mm -hmm. Then it's good to step back and and think in a more simple level, simpler in some ways than what you've learned. Mm -hmm. Because it makes you realize, okay, uh, the kind of music I do, I do electronica, or I do classical guitar, or whatever. It's always done this way, but it can be done that way. Mm -hmm. There's another way often that you can do things. Mm -hmm. Um, So it can help you as a composer, performer, improviser, and so on. But, but you don't need it. No, it's true. You, you really don't need to have all this uh, well, ex- you, excess you, knowledge. You said that. that. You know, you said that. I, I didn't say that. You don't need this book because, like, I, you know, you're preaching to the choir with me when, mm-hmm. with, when it comes to these things. And I, in my teaching, the, uh, this sort of, like, underlying, and I'm not going to use the word music theory, but the mm-hmm. truth, the physicality of sound, right, mm-hmm. The reality of sound mm-hmm. uh, is th- where I start, and I even do it completely without using mathematics. Because the, what I do is I, I I create a story. For me, it's storytelling. Mm-hmm. I sort of like I pick any time. Like I talk about a monk in Cologne, uh, you know, who is drinking with his brothers, and they sing and blah blah blah, and they start kind of like trying to notate something, and then uh, uh, the whole story goes to okay. And, I thought that know, was Arezzo in Italy. Yeah, I know. I thought it was it Guido Arezzo. Yeah, it doesn't. It doesn't. It doesn't the matter. Germans what, they moved to Cologne, huh? Yeah. You know, okay. No, the, the 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 idea is that it doesn't really matter uh, how you t- the story isn't true. It doesn't have to be true, but you can explain the principles, and you can explain to somebody that the fifth is is what creates everything. It's the beginning of everything. You're stacking fifth, and you're getting all the twelfth notes. Right. Right. right? And then you realize, okay, so why are, are there only seven? Okay, well, there only seven because the eighth note creates a new structure, which is the chromatic cluster, which for some reason we don't want. So then I call it like, you know what I mean by that? Yeah, I yeah. No, like, I like, exactly like, like some mean. sort of human intervention. So we decide yeah. we don't want to go from the B to the F sharp. So what we do is we say, okay, let's quantize it and let's just use the interval that brings us back to the F that we started with. Right. And there we get this new interval. It's a tritone. 
And then from there, from the tritone, we go to, okay, the tritone, the tension wants to re resolve somehow, or we want to hear it resolve. I don't, but some, you know, to, to C and E. And then we have the third, right? Mm -hmm. So it's like, so in this story continues and like I create like all the intervals from within the story. And it's not about that the story has to be true, but it's for people to understand that the cycle, the cycle of fifths or the 12 notes is kind of like this endless spiral in which music can, can unfold, but that at some point, some musical styles, let's say, decided that there is an end at some point. And then the beauty, the beauty of the tritone, and I, I heard you say that in the other talk, the beauty of the tritone that it is actually, it introduces the symmetry into the octave, which then creates problems. It's an exact symmetry, yeah. It's yeah. an exact half, yeah. Yeah, and, it, and, it, and it, it creates problems because that means that the chords you build on the seventh degree of the major scale, you also need to kind of like build into the other direction because it has the same, same uh, push and pull quality, no matter if it yeah, goes It's interesting in the other. that it can push yeah. and pull, it can push from, can you hear the piano? Yeah. The organ? Yeah. 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 So can you can either resolve this way. Yeah. Which everybody that grew up in Germany has heard in church a million times, but it can also resolve. Yeah. Right? So it can exactly. remove in, resolve inward or outward. And exactly. a great amount of the great German music is made of the choice between doing that or doing that. Exactly. exactly. It brings you to two different scales. Now, I going to, I pretty much agree with what you're saying, mm -hmm. but I do have I, but I do have disagreements with it too. Yeah. Okay. Because I would say that um, one of the stories that you're so you're telling a story that I would call the Pythagorean tuning system. Yeah which is you're going to start here and you're going to go up a fifth or if you'd rather, let's say it's up a fourth. You, you understand what I mean. Yes. So it's, you're going to go like this and then up a fourth, which is really the three over the two. And we won't go into that for all the listeners. If you mm -hmm. want to understand that, it's, it's easy to get, but just abbreviating it. You're going to go here and then you're going to go to there and you're going to go there and there and there and there and, there. and eventually you end up almost but not quite almost ending up right mm -hmm. on the 12th time the 12th time but they're never exactly in tune yeah. that's called the pythagorean comma mm -hmm. because it never exactly ends up but if you were in ancient greece instead of contemporary berlin you would tell the story differently mm -hmm. you would say that this is and this is what people call just intonation but you would say Okay, on the strings of my lyra, of my lyra, lyra, we're going to have, um, we're first going to make the string exactly one half the length by playing a harmonic. If you like, I can bring the guitar over there, but for guitar players, put your finger on the 12th fret and you will hear it. So this is an open guitar note on the low string is this, right? And if you, play on the 12th fret you're going to have this and if you just touch the note slightly you're going to have this right now instead of putting it on the half point put your finger on one third the length of the string on most guitars there's actually a little dot there so it goes they don't even teach that but that's one third right and that's this that's this note and if you play it as a harmonic you're going to get that note. 
Yeah. Right? So you get this, this. Okay, so you're already starting with the octave and the fifth in your scale. Now let's cut it into uh, fourths. Now you get this. Okay? Let's cut it into ninths, and I'm moving them down an octave, and you're going to get... I have the first four notes of my Greek classical scale on a lira, do do da da, just by cutting the string or making harmonics, if you will. Mm -hmm. Well, cutting, tapping the string on the guitar into uh, octave, into a third, I mean, into a half, into a third, into a fourth, into this happens to be a ninth or a tenth. In fact, you can either make it a ninth or a tenth as long. And a lot of the arguments in Greece were if Ray, do, Ray, should the Ray be a one ninth or one tenth of the length of the string? Mm -hmm. That was a big argument. Okay. Um, okay, so you have that. But as you know, because you think about this kind of stuff, well, there's a problem. That's nice, but where, where, where how am I going to get this? Right? What you do is you start the whole process again, but you start it on the fifth. Right? Now you get this, and you get uh, this, and let's see. Right, you get the, the major third again because you do the tenth. Okay? So, so that's why they had this term. I'm sure you've heard of it. So an octave eight would be where that starts and then this starts and then with five but those notes don't have to be art or they can be but the point is you always have this one and you always have that one so you always have one pattern you know so the pattern we're most used to in germany is going to be right but they can mix it up they could go or but the, these two are always the same, okay? And and so uh, in in the ancient Greek thing, it it would be a different way than the, a different story than the way you explained it. It would be making uh, whole rational number subdivisions of the length of a string, starting on what what we'll call the fundamental, and starting uh, or do, and starting on the fifth or what we call sol, right? And all the Greek tuning systems come out of that, what they call diatonic and chromatic, which is different than what we call diatonic and chromatic. Mm -hmm. and, and the different tuning systems, they know if you're going to sing the Iliad, you might use this one. If you're going to sing uh, Hesiod, you might use another one. If you're going to sing, sing Aristophanes, you might use still a different one. So uh, that would be um, their story about... Uh, and they call them, oh, they have a word for four. Tetrachords. Ah, it's not the Latin word. Tetrachords. Yeah, tetrachords. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so they would say an octave is made of two tetrachords, two groups of four strings. Well, that mm -hmm. doesn't make any sense, right? We're just say, but it makes sense if you say one, two, three, four, mm -hmm. okay, which we just went through. It's one quarter, it's one ninth, it's uh, one something else, uh, one ninth, one tenth. And then the same thing here. Two tetrachords. Yeah. These notes are always the same. So that's their story. So that 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 is sort of what people describe as quote just intonation.
Mm-hmm. Does just intonation have to be that way? Not a bit. If you want to play something extraordinary, mm-hmm. we'll play some of Harry Parch's music, which is just intonation with something like, I can't remember, 43 tones in an octave. Mm-hmm. And it sounds mm-hmm. like people speaking. It's amazing. Uh, but there's just intonation. Also, okay, so I, I would agree with you that most of the music that we listen to in the world is based on your story. There's history, her story, and your story, mm-hmm. and my story. <laughs> so in history, his story, your um, your Pythagorean explanation, not the best term because Pythagoras actually is just intonation. But mm-hmm. still, Pythagor- the Pythagorean story, yeah, you 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 got it. That's it's a chain of fits. Mm-hmm. One yeah. overtone, cut the cut the essentially make the string one third as long. But to the ancient Greeks, it would it would be just. And and there's plenty of other musics which are just. And sometimes, frankly, it's kind of hard to tell. And the truth is, we're all with all everything on a synthesizer uh, and on a computer. We're playing out of tune all the time, anyway. Mm-hmm. So who really gives a damn? It's what it's yeah. that becomes culturally conditioned. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. You know, like the the story. The story. I think, as I said, like it's not about presenting any sort of truths. Like I'm I'm using it to open the minds of people to to for for to make clear to them that at least like the twelfth notes that they are familiar with, they all have the same. They are all the same, but they do get into different relationships. And so to really understand so that it's not about actually having to stick to a scale or to a mode or even, you know, to a pentatonic scale. But then there is like some other like, uh, because you were talking about the pentatonic scales, right? Mm -hmm. So then for people to understand that a pentatonic scale is actually five connected fifths, right? right? And a diatonic scale is seven connected fifths. That gives gives a great aha moment. That really just yeah. helps them, kind of like yeah, like like being more open to just understand that, like as you were demonstrating just now, if you want to go from Ionian to Mixolydian, you change one note. If you want to go to Dorian, change one more note, and stuff like that. And then you can start. You know, you don't have to take tetrachords. You can take any subdivision of the twelve notes to kind of like modulate any time you want. You can use all the twelve notes, and that's why that's what my story is tailored to, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know, to open the ears of people. Right? There's, there's almost no musical style in our species, at least, you know, a, a musical style with a tradition that doesn't use, right? There's almost none, but there are some very rare instances. Yes. Now, one is uh, in some gamelan music, mm-hmm. they tune this on purpose because the gamelan tunings are very careful and you have a at least one good gamelan in berlin mm-hmm. um and they tune it so in in some of the tunings so that they avoid the fifth or even avoid the octave yeah. but if you play a gamelan instrument you hear so much ringing and that ringing actually has in one in one in, in one note has and those the octaves and fifths and so on yeah, very yeah. very strong yeah. The other one that I'm aware of is um, Wendy Carlos, mm-hmm. the famous synthesizer composer who did Switched on Bach 40, 50 years ago, um, maybe longer now. And she, um, on purpose, has made scales that sound really good that don't use octaves and fifths. Mm-hmm. Um, 
are people going to pick up the scale and use it? I mean, you certainly can. But yeah, um, it depends. Uh, not, not too depends. many people picked it up, but she's great and she makes it yeah. sound beautiful. Yeah, yeah. No, it really it's depends very, on what, very what kind rare. of style. What kind of style? If you if you want to uh, compose polyphony with this side, sort of like progressive. I call them like progressively detuned. I don't know what the real term for that would be, mm -hmm. but but um, writing harmony in that is is pretty difficult, you know. And and I think that's that's still the nut that we have to crack as human beings how to how to write music uh, with those tuning systems because somehow they don't seem to be, become that naturally to us. And and that they, 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 that's the question: Is it is it a cultural? People, they do to people like you have a lot of Turkish music in Berlin. Yeah. So they do to people from Turkey. They do yeah. from people from Persia, Iran, and uh, the people doing um, uh, what's now called classical Arabic music. Mm -hmm. Now they divide. Nowadays they divide it into twenty-four notes per octave. Yes. The truth is, usually use eight notes, but often those eight notes are quarter tones. And uh, to them, because they grow up hearing it, it's very, very um, in tune and easy for them to come up with compositions. One of the things that would be very helpful is if Casio came back. They used to have this uh, very nice keyboard for Middle Eastern music. I remember it. They paid all the, I can't find it. They stopped making it. I don't know what the hell's going on with these guys. So, um, but with that, you know, because I would walk into a, Arabic restaurant or Moroccan restaurant or something here in New York and there'd be a band, live band, and they're playing with that keyboard and they can mm -hmm. play everything pretty much in the real tuning that we call microtonal, but to them, that's not microtonal. That's where the notes are. Um, and if people had access to that, I think that'd be one way. The, another very famous one is, is the blues because nobody who's a good blues musician is using the exact, you know, if BB King or Robert Johnson or Muddy Waters or or the Memphis Mini or anybody, Buddy Guy, you know, anybody's playing real blues was doing it with the exact notes of the way that we've been talking about on the keyboard, it would just sound dreadful. It, it would sound, it would sound, it sounds horrible. So yes. everybody that does the blues is using those, uh, are using those quote microtones all the time. Mm -hmm. You know, another point is uh, hip hop music and anything with rap, not not just rap, anything with spoken, any music that uses uh, speech um, has to be using microtones because that's how we speak. We we yeah. use these pitches in our voice back and forth all all the time, right? Yeah. In China, Thailand, you have to use more because of the meaning of words, so-called tonal languages. But we yeah. have to use it all the time with each other or else we sound, our, it's like singing the blues with the 12 notes on the piano. It just sounds really boring. You know, all those great blues piano players, like listen to Otis Spann, the piano player from Muddy Waters. And he's playing beautiful blues on the piano. But why? Because he's... Because he's playing those notes. That you play those two notes together, which you can't do in Bach. If you did that in Bach, that would be wrong. But if you don't do it in blues, it's also wrong. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah. I think that, like, my, uh, um, again, like, a continuation of the story that I tell my people is that 
with the octave, which seems to be, which is like a fundamental law of nature, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. What what happens is that the tritone is the middle of that, but then as we go to the fifth, which is like the other really important interval, it happens that the fifth in the system that we use nowadays, there is no middle, right? So we have the minor third, we have the major third, but if there's oh, no there's the no two. real between the two between the uh, between the fifth interval. Yeah, that's more you know? like the blues third. It's exactly kind of exactly exactly and that's that's why i think that basically it's 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 sort of like a, a little bit of a fractal where you can sort of you can apply the same rules again even to to a smaller intervals and then you see okay so this is divisible by three by two by four whatever right um or even by five like i i've never gotten that far but at least when it comes to quarter notes you know i started composing with quarter notes like 25 years ago and mm. um i actually just used a pitch shifter on a guitar pedal which yeah. i did tune it to like 25 cents and then i right. you know that's um it's it's really um i think there's there are as you say and this 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 is what i what i like about the um the the, the basic assumptions of the book there is actually an explanation. It's not that it's uh, it's not something that as human beings we can't understand. It's something that we actually have to take as something that's just there, and then we can see. Okay, Lord, like you were saying, like what kind of uh, uh, neurological patterns does that generate? And and I, I saw some graphics that you um, and I, I'm I'm going to link to all of this in the uh, in the description of this. Um, and what I'm interested in, though, now let's come to the mind part, mm -hmm. right, mm -hmm. uh, of your book. Um, and um, so, how are because, like you said, okay, the, these patterns, these 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 patterns are also represented in the brain. How are they represented in the brain? Well, that's a deep question, and answering. I, I know. Yeah, <laughs> would take an immensely long time, and a lot of yeah. it we don't know. Yes. Mm -hmm. uh, kind of depends where you start talking about in the brain. Yeah. Uh, so are we going to, um, the, 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 the cells that figure out the pitch, mm -hmm. uh, the, the, the frequencies, I'm sorry to non-musicians listening to this, but the musicians will understand what I'm talking about. So the ones that hear the pitch that say, I'm on an A, no, I'm on an E flat, no, I'm a little sharp of an A. Mm -hmm. Those are cells in a part of your ear called the cochlea. Mm -hmm. And they're called hair cells because, um, so they were, the, this was described by a guy that might've been Prussian mm -hmm. named uh, von Helmholtz yeah. about, uh, getting towards 200 years ago now. He has a beautiful book in German called The Sensations of Tone, mm -hmm. um, which is, is really worth reading. It's, it's a fantastic book. And I, I would say it was, it's the single uh, biggest influence on my book. Um, and of course, you guys can read it in the original language. Mm -hmm. So, um, but the uh, hair cells were um, discovered by an Italian count who was also an anatomist. I'm, I'm afraid of the, the count, you know, someone, and I just forgot his name. So uh, examining, you know, 
in cadavers and seeing that there are these little hair-like structures on the top and that these could be um, uh, activated. Well, the idea was that these could be activated by, I think originally they thought airflow, but eventually by, by von Helmholtz's time, realized that it had to do with actually fluid. So you have the air coming in, the uh, go, going through being amplified and altered somewhat by the pinnae of the ear, the ear canal, going into the ear canal, going through a series of steps where you end up having a very small bone, which, um, well, I, I forgot to mention an important part, the eardrum. So the eardrum is this thin membrane, thin, relatively small membrane that vibrates the same, very similar to the way a speaker would vibrate. Mm -hmm. So when you're hearing our conversation back through a speaker, whether it's in your headphones or in a speaker system, that, that speaker is vibrating at the frequency that you're hearing. And because my voice is low and has a lot of overtones, the speaker is also doing that, the same way that we were talking about a guitar string before, which is vibrating at, you know, if you had the open string of the guitar, it's vibrating mm. here, but you're, you're not, you hear that, but you're also hearing, but not quite as aware of, that it's also vibrating at, 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 at um, the, and then all those intervals are there and adding them all up makes the guitar, the sound of a guitar string, mm -hmm. like adding different ingredients and I don't know, you could get goulash or you could get something else by how much pepper you add. Okay. Um, so the eardrum is, is doing this, but it has to, it has, it's vibrating like a speaker. So how are we going to get that into signals that can go into travel into the brain? So this happens by, um, and I'm skipping some minor steps and getting the things which I think are most important. Mm -hmm. There is a snail-like looking structure in the ear which is called cochlea which latin and italian for for um snail and and so you're vibrating this this is filled with fluid so you're taking the waves of air and i know we didn't really talk about waves of air but at the eardrum um through a series of tiny tiny bones having the this liquid area vibrate now inside of this cochlea are these cells that have the hair. And so the vibration under these cells is making like the slats on our marimba. We were talking about the slats, uh, we were talking about marimba before. So if you're on like a G flat, okay, this is moving here, in particularly making this so-called hair cell move over here. And the louder it is, the more movement there is. Now, this movement is opening up what we call channels, which are small proteins, essentially, in the cell. And through those, through those channels, I know this is a lot, and, you know, but you, you okay. can read about it's it okay. and learn about it. So there are ions in the liquid. The ions are like if you take salt and it dissolves, you know, salt is sodium chloride. So there's a positively charged sodium ion and a negatively charged chloride ion in, in your salt water. And some of the ions, uh, ion channels 
will open up only for sodium, other ones for only for chloride. And in these cells, the potassium channels are particularly important. So when that moves, it's like an electron moving across an electrical wire. It's making, literally making an electric current. So this is where, first we had waves in the air, which I know we kind of glossed over. Then we had waves in liquid. Now we have electrical waves. So there are neurons running from these uh, hair cells. The neurons are also electrically active and they run together. There's about 30,000 of them in humans from each year. Each one is specializing in a particular pitch. So one's kind of G flat, one's a little north of G flat, one's a little south, and, and they, they're not exact. So they kind of, there will be what they call a best frequency. I, I'm going to be most active at this G flat. Well, I'm going to be most active at this G flat, me over here. Um, the louder you get, you know, if you play too loud, I'm sure you know this if you play rock music, if you play too loud, you start to, the, the, it's not so easy to be in tune. You go more out of tune. On the other hand, there is a physical explanation for that. And sometimes going out of tune, actually, when you're playing loud, sounds good. Yeah. Right? I mean, sometimes, literally, sometimes it sounds good. There's whole different kinds of rock music, including Jimi Hendrix, which are in part made, it's part, part of him playing, quote, out of tune, which is not out of tune. It's exactly where he wants to be. Yeah. But, it's, um, but it's, not, it's not that anymore. Right? Mm -hmm. and, and, and so part of that is when it gets loud enough and distorted enough, you start getting all sorts of other sounds that happen to be overtones, as you mentioned, and they make the sound really pleasant. And you get to get this when you overblow a tenor saxophone and on and on and on. So um, you're getting those cells in, that are attached, that are responding to the hair cells to be electrically active. And there are patterns of these and that nerve, the auditory nerve runs into the brain. So with all the explanation I've given you, we've only gone like two or three steps. Yes. Now it starts to get complicated, but, but at least uh, it gives you the beginning of understanding the mind part. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We, we can, if you like, we can go further or we could stop there. Or, oh, I, I, I would or love to go on another day. <laughs> no, I, I, if you, if you still have some time, let's, let's go a little further because it would be interesting for me uh, to know what we know, what you know about what happens next. Well, so if you put an electrode onto the auditory nerve, uh, and so you're measuring those electrical currents and you run that electrode into a speaker, maybe first into an amplifier, then a speaker. You can pretty much hear played back what you're hearing, even though it's no longer in air, not even in liquid, like hearing sound through water. It's now electrical current. So you're still pretty much making the uh, patterns of of frequencies are now uh, are now are now simply electrical. There are several next stops, but the sort of the classical next stop that most people will talk about is in in the midbrain, 
um, I'm, I'm actually skipping some stops that have to do with things like telling if the sound comes from the left ear versus the right ear, you know, which one comes first. Important to us for stereo sound, very important if you're an owl and you have to know where your prey is. You know, so a lot more of their brain is devoted to that kind of thing than ours. Um, and uh, other attributes of, of sound. So, uh, but we end up in a, a part of the uh, a part of the brain uh, called superior colliculus. You put an electrode in there, and you can still hear most of what's gone, what's going on. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, this goes to another region called the thalamus. Um, now, the, I understand the names of the regions don't sound very important. How are you going to use that as a musician? Um, but they are, they are actually important because if you could think about the different organs in your body, you know, the kidneys involved in removing salts and, and the heart is involved in moving blood and so on. The different regions of the nervous system are also involved in different tasks. So your sensory information eventually goes to this large area called the cortex. But before it goes there, it has to go into the thalamus for additional processing. By the time the thalamus sends it to the so-called auditory cortex, you're not going to simply be able to put an electrode there and hear it played back through a speaker anymore. Mm-hmm. Now it's going to be very abstracted. So you're going to hear a series of clicks mm-hmm. that don't sound particularly musical mm-hmm. and they don't go in a high enough frequency. These neurons can't really fire more than about 20 hertz. 20 hertz is about the low end of what we can hear. Mm-hmm. So what we're really hearing is if we plug in the brain activity there, it's not like listening to the auditory nerve where we have 30,000 channels. Um, we still have, we actually have millions of channels there because there are many millions of cells, but they're not necessarily firing at the same frequency. If we're playing A440 in the air, that's the air moving between high and low pressure 440 times a second. Mm-hmm. It's sort of washing back and forth in pressure in the cochlea at that. And, and if we, although no cell in the auditory nerve is actually firing 440 times, there's enough of them firing at divisions in that and harmonics of that, that we, we, we reconstruct that we're hearing that note. And by the time we go to the cortex, that's gone. And what so, we just hear is tick, 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 tick. So do we know, or do, do you know what the thalamus does? I mean, what's, what? Yeah, a bit, but where I want to jump to is the cortex. Okay. Okay. Because at that part, it becomes very abstracted. So parts of the cortex, there's a region called the auditory cortex. If somebody has an electrode touching their auditory cortex, they will hear something. And depending upon where you are in the auditory cortex, that's where they'll hear different things. Um, Then uh, there are other parts of the cortex which are involved in comparisons of volume. Other areas which are involved in timbre other ones where you need to have connections between the auditory cortex and those other regions that are involved in understanding a tempo. So tempo, we haven't been speaking about rhythm, but it's just as important as as melody and pitch. So um, you need to have an internal clock set up in order to tell what the rhythm is. Mm -hmm. 
Well, a great deal of that is from the thalamus that you were talking about, and a great deal of that is in the cortex. And you need that in music to understand where the beats are and to understand where the syncopation is. To understand syncopation, you kind of need two simultaneous clocks. Now, you can measure these in the brain. You can also measure what happens when the clock changes because the, an unexpected beat just happened or the tempo just changed or a beat that you expected to be there isn't, isn't there. Mm -hmm. So when you're listening to the rite of spring, for instance, you're getting these changes in your cortical firing constantly. Mm -hmm. So that kind of gives you a beginning of understanding what the sound is. Now you want to go to the state next stages about, well, how does this translate into motion? Mm -hmm. And we know a certain amount of this, but by far not enough to give you very satisfying answers. Mm -hmm. we, we know some of the hormones and neurotransmitters and even connections that are involved. And what about meaning? What, what does a sound mean? It doesn't have to be a musical sound. What does a word mean? And we're starting to understand this too. Uh, and to really talk about this, frankly, I have a graduate student working on this, and he has a talk for people that don't have a good background on it. And it takes about an hour. And by the end of the talk, you'll understand a lot. Mm -hmm. But for me to do it, it would also take an hour. I'm just going to lose everybody. Yeah. But uh, we have the beginning of understanding this. It has to do, if you want it, just a, two sentences. It has to, it, it's, it's a combinatorial coincidence. So you need to have a sound come in and at the same time from another perception that something worked or it didn't work. So then you can couple these two, and you could probably couple them at a particular synapse, a connection between neurons in the brain that has all three of them, the responder, it's like radio, the, the input, the responder, and, and the modulator all together at the same time. You know, I, um, it's been a long time since I uh, had... Um, uh, like my physiology classes, right? That was like in, in the early 90s. And that's, I think that's also one of the reasons why I'm so interested in hearing what you have to say, because like we are, it's, it's about like that was 30 years ago. So kind of like... Sorry, one second. Yeah, it's okay. You know, I'm just 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 thinking yeah. about like like the, the you know the progress, the progress in the field. Uh, um, that's what I'm interested in, like like Broca's area and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. I I, mm -hmm. I kind of like I I learned about that 30 years ago, right? Mm -hmm. So, um, but now that we that there are like um, like we have measuring, I, I don't know about those like measuring tools that kind of like let you kind of like look much deeper and which high with higher resolution. A lot of them uh, came from Germany over a hundred years ago from a guy named Berger. Mm -hmm. Well, not a, I think he published in 1926 or something. Yeah. Uh, but the invention of the electroencephalogram. Yeah, yeah. So our our best ways of measuring in people to use variations of that technique. Now, yeah. In, yeah. in mice, for instance, we have uh, new optical techniques using fluorescent compounds and so on. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Is, the, do you, is there also research on the level of neurotransmitters when it comes to, to hearing? Oh, a lot. Oh, yeah. yeah. Quite a bit. Oh, yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, this is this, the, you know, if I ever get a chance to talk to you again, like, uh, I would really, uh, well, like I'll be to happy to talk other. to you again about it. And, uh, there's a lot of, you know, I, I'm not trying to advertise my book, but there's no, a lot of information sure. in the book. And if you, if you read it, mm -hmm. you'll have a good basis to begin, you know, those conversations and, and, and yes. go yes. a bit further, but they're very active and uh, all over the world, you know, people are examining these kinds of questions and they become, uh, they become deeper and deeper. You know, you can, you can go further and further and further. And, and a lot of the very simple questions that you and everyone who's a music curious artist would ask, are ones that are being addressed. So that means the more you know, the more questions you get. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Knowledge, I like to say, is, is human knowledge is like kind of like blowing up a balloon because you, it, it gets bigger, you know more, but there's also more uh, territory on the skin of the balloon, right? That's become bigger too. So what's known and unknown becomes greater. You know, there's more you know you don't know. The more you learn, the more you don't know. But these kind of questions are answerable. If you go back to Aristotle, there were, or let's say Thomas Aquinas, uh, Tommaso Aquino, there were these people that had said, these are the big questions. Well, some of those questions, like what is procreation? This is a miracle. How can mm -hmm. two humans come up with a third? This mm -hmm. is one of the miracles and we need to understand it, but we probably never will. Well, actually we understand it pretty well right now. Yes. So yes. some things, it doesn't mean, but it's opened up all other questions on genetics, right? And mm -hmm. development mm -hmm. that we didn't have back then. Now we have them because we know more. Mm -hmm. So uh, some of these questions are partly answered. Some of them are going to become answered mm -hmm. as long as we can keep civilization going. Uh, can I make a suggestion how we can uh, wrap up this conversation? Sure, um, sure. Let's go. So the argument um, that I, if, as far as I understand, that you're also um, uh, talking about in the book is that the hearing, listening uh, of other animals is should be pretty similar to what we experience, right? Or to where does where, yes, like so, and 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 um, yeah, just maybe tell me a little bit of, about that. In some ways, the perception is very different because, uh, and depending upon the animal. So, elephants, for instance, hear pitch similarly to us, but they do hear about an, uh, roughly an octave lower at both ends. So, uh, they that this is why they can hear the deep rumbles that mm -hmm. traveling through the earth that we we simply can't hear. The only way that we can hear these rumbles is record it on a good, on a good system, and then play it back twice as fast. Mm -hmm. And that, then we can hear, you know, we get a perception which is more similar. Um, on the other hand, uh, some of the high frequency information we have that we don't use, we don't use in, in musical composition, but it, it lends some of the sound to our diphthongs, you know, to our sounds when we speak and somewhat to the sounds of instruments. Although, frankly, most of that area, if you go into a professional recording studio, usually over about 10K, they start to do a roll off anyway. So we're not using that much of that information. Um, but it's one reason that people, as, they, as we get older, have a harder time understanding conversation because some of those high notes have 
uh, rubbed off often because those hair cells that we were talking about before have died. Um, often they've died because of exposure to loud noise and loud music. So mm -hmm. good reason to be careful about that stuff. Mm -hmm. um, so there's differences in perception in that way, but there are differences, many other differences in perception. Okay. Um, just to get, you know, really far out, well, bats can hear about three or four octaves higher than we can. Mm -hmm. So people didn't realize how much bat communication is going on, nor mouse communication is most of, most of it. We hear them squeak, but there's plenty going on beyond what we can hear. Uh, Sue Savage-Rimbaugh tells me that this is almost certainly happening with bonobos. So some bonobos can understand a lot of human spoken speech, but we don't understand that. Mm -hmm. um, there are other senses which are similar to music, and saying that it's not music would become semantic. So moths, for instance, will feel the vibrations in a twig. Now, the only way we could get a sensation like that is if it was something much larger and put our ear right up next to it so that we get vibration in our, our skulls and so on, mm -hmm. which is, a, you know, a way that we hear. And people with uh, ear damage can still often hear because, you know, vibration. You take a tuning fork hit it, and put it on your skull. It's not going through your ear and you're hearing it. Yeah. Uh, whales appear to hear in that fashion, for instance. Mm -hmm. But uh, the movement of a twig might be the equivalent of music or speech or communication, however you want it, whatever term you want to use, for a moth. <laughs> there are other animals that are picking up electromagnetic fields. Mm -hmm. Birds are doing this. Mm -hmm. um, bees do this. Um, mm -hmm. So it's electric fish. So it's, it's, you know, that's not something we can, it's, you know, maybe this, closest we can get is like getting goosebumps or something like that might begin to give us a little bit of insight, just an idea of, of what that might be like. Mm -hmm. um, but they use it as a form of communication. Electric fish and, and bees have advanced communication using that sense, which is an invisible sense to us. Mm -hmm. Much the high and low frequencies are invisible to us. So you're going to say, well, Dave, if you're saying all that, how come you're saying that we hear like other animals? Well, we hear like other animals, at least like once with auditory cortex, because when we were talking about an hour and a half ago, all those pitches and overtones and all that seem to be perceived the same way yeah. in, in those animals. Mm -hmm. So I would say with, you know, without a lot of confidence, but with, you know, educated guests um, from recordings that other people do, that uh, their perception of things like consonants and noise are very, very similar to ours. What mm -hmm. sounds constant to us sounds consonant, I would think, to most mammals uh, and, and to many, well, probably to most birds and maybe mm -hmm. to, to other um, um, animals as well. Mm -hmm. Like you said, they're kind of built into the physics. Yes. They're, they're built into the physics in the air, but also in the nervous system. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So basically, it says like up to the point where we can still detect the, the, the frequency pattern, let's say, in the nervous system. We, we kind of like know that up to that point, it's no different in an elephant than it's, it is it's in a different, human. You know, they have different. And also, uh, we filter. So uh, we walk into the woods 
and we're hearing stuff all around us, but our our companion speaks, and suddenly we're tuned into that, okay? Yeah. And this is probably true for all species. So they're more tuned into some sounds than others, often the ones that are most important from their own species. This has even been recorded. There's a woman, Darcy Kelly at Columbia, records this, and like uh, frogs that can hear in the same regions will react more to the call of their own related species than are more distantly related species. Yeah. But like the story I just said, we do, we do this kind of thing uh, ourselves. But still, to some extent, yes. And so uh, do you know David Rothenberg, who goes to Berlin yeah, sure. all the time? He's a good friend of mine, so, yeah. Good. So when David is playing his clarinet with the nightingales, the uh, they are having some similarity in hearing. I'm not I'm saying total, but the pitches are mostly being, maybe not entirely, being heard in similar ways. A lot of the consonants is being heard in similar ways. Now, it could be that because nightingales are such great singers, they will perceive uh, melodies, you know, human-made melodies differently than, say, Sparrow, who's also a songbird, but might just go like, oh, God, that clarinet's the most boring thing. Who would even want to play it? Whereas a nightingale would go like, hey, that's pretty cool. Yeah. The same way that we might go, oh, the nightingale. You know, I like sparrows, but nightingales, wow, that's really something. So uh, there's a lot of that in there, too. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So is it like, is it, there's a lot of like, and there's a lot of not alike. Mm -hmm. So we we can be confident and humble both. Yes. Kind of understand a bit about what it likes to be another species and we kind of don't understand. Mm -hmm. So I think we have to, we have to, to the extent we can be aware of both. Mm -hmm. Wonderful. Wonderful. Okay, my friends. Okay. Thank you. <laughs> that was, that, that was, was fantastic. Was Say fantastic. hello to uh, David for me when he's next time he's out there jamming in the tear garden. Yeah. And, uh, uh, you know, I, I, actually, soon. I actually live in one of those parks with the nightingales. Oh, you poor guy. That must have been terrible. <laughs> All night long, they, they sing. <laughs> oh, no, I love them. I love them. <laughs> yeah. No, we don't have them in the merit. We have some beautiful songbirds here, but we don't have those. Mm -hmm. Yes. And it's we incredible. have the musical cat, as you just heard. Yes. <laughs> musical house cat. The musical domesticated cat. <laughs> Okay, Come on, get off the piano. All right, there we go. <laughs> Was a okay pleasure talking. Yeah, bye bye. Okay, bye. so long now. Thank you. Bye bye.